Hello, welcome to Kind Mind and to the year 2024. This is the hundredth episode of this show. I appreciate your generosity with your time and to those who have supported this work on Patreon and contributed financially. It means so much that we're still here doing this after a hundred episodes. And so those of you who are Patreon members, you can be looking out for the gift to commemorate 100 episodes should be arriving in the mail soon. And if you haven't given me your address, those of you on Patreon, you can do so there if you would like to receive a little token of appreciation from me. And it's also special that 100 comes as the first episode of the new year. This one is all about seeds. When I was a young man working an overnight shift at the hospital, a friend of mine, Mark, gave me a book by Thomas Merton called New Seeds of Contemplation. And there's a passage that is germinating now in my consciousness. It goes like this. Instead of hating the people you think are war makers, hate the appetites and disorder in your own soul, which are the causes of war. If you love peace, then hate injustice, hate tyranny, hate greed but hate these things in yourself. And so the work that we do here on ourselves and the seeds that we spread with these messages, I believe, are sowing seeds of transformation, seeds of wisdom. We're trying to create the conditions in our own minds and hearts for harmony, for peace. And I say this because undoubtedly, This will be another year with a lot of tension and chaos, even evil on the global stage. But there's only so much we can do. However, I really believe that if you change your life, if you make it a beacon of hope, a shrine of peace, there's a powerful ripple effect. Anyways, this episode is about seeds. It was recorded last summer, I believe. And... This isn't really the time of planting, but it is the time of seeding resolutions and dreaming in the winter of quiet and stillness of darkness of our spring, the spring of our future. In this episode, we delve into the underground world of seeds and the unexpected life lessons they can teach us from the sacred lotus seed, which can remain viable for over a thousand years to the dust-like orchid seeds that rely on fungi to germinate, to the lodgepole pine, which requires fire to release its seeds from the resin in cones. There is much to glean about resilience, potential, and interconnectedness. These odd timelines for seeds and the strange conditions within which they sprout can remind us that human progress is also not always straightforward. It can also inspire us to remain engaged in sowing the seeds of kindness and transformation in the face of adversity, trusting the latent magic will unfold. In Hinduism and Buddhism, bija is the word for seed. It's often used to describe the essence of something, which can represent the beginning or source of a concept, an idea, or a practice. For example, in yoga, Bija mantras are seed syllables that are considered to hold the essence of a specific energy or deity. When chanted or meditated upon, these bija mantras are believed to help activate and harmonize the associated energy 
or invoke the deity's presence. I hope you enjoy these reflections on the wisdom contained within seeds in nature and culture and explore ways to apply these insights to your daily life for nurturing a destiny of well-being and happiness. Thank you again for helping me reach this milestone of a uh, hundred episodes. I look forward to connecting in this new year, wishing you and your loved ones and this world many blessings. The word seed has the roots just in the sound C, S-E, see and sow. A seed is that which can be sown or from which anything springs. So with that definition, it could have a lot of other philosophical implications. As uh, some of my family's in Miami, so they're really excited about the basketball team, the Miami Heat, going to the NBA Finals as the eighth seed in the tournament, which is the last place seed. And it got me thinking, why do we call the rankings of teams or players in tournaments the seeds? Does the first seed, the eighth seed, or one seed? So I looked it up, and it comes from tennis. Once upon a time, for tournament play, they thought it would be good to create matches such that in the later stages of the tournament, the more attractive competition would face off, thereby creating a more entertaining experience or product. And probably administrators of the sport or the league were sitting around with the names of the players on pieces of paper and moving these pieces of paper around on a table. And it looked very much like coordinating seeds for planting. I think there may also be a connection to the concept of concession. The administrators or officials would would sit around the table and try to come to a consensus on who's better than who in terms of the ranking or seeding. And can we concede that this particular player has been more successful this year and therefore ought to be positioned to have an advantage in the tournament? Can we concede to that? And then it just shortened to let's seed this, let's seed that. And I think that's how we have seeding in the sports. It forms a, a ladder, a a path, a bracket towards uh, a final match. There's a quote from British philosopher James Allen. The law of harvest is to reap more than you sow. And then he goes on to say, an action can reap a habit. A habit can reap a character. A character can reap a destiny. And it's very similar to something I, I think that's attributed to Gandhi about being careful with your thoughts because they become your words and be careful with your words because they become your actions and ultimately your your character becomes your destiny. The notion here is that a seed is ordinarily very small, but it produces so much. It can manifest so much. That is the magic of the seed. And I think that's going to be the core principle that the small becomes many by constant building. In different wisdom traditions, the concept of a seed is used in the way wisdom is imparted from a, a, a teacher to a student. In Sanskrit, the word for seed is bija, B-I-J-A. And there is a whole 
science and art of chanting bija mantras or seed syllables, what's beautiful about Sanskrit is each letter of the 50 letters is also a word. Any letter in Sanskrit could have up to seven meanings. And it's also a metaphor for how a seed becomes many. And there's belief in the chanting of mantras that these seed syllables or sounds create a vibration. Whenever you're speaking or chanting, there is um, an energy exchange with the environment around one. When the, the voice produces that particular sound, it creates ripples in the air. The belief is that that sends a, a certain kind of transfer of energy. When you pair that with concentration, with meditation, with focus, with surrender and receptivity, powerful things can happen. Healing can happen or manifestation can happen. Anyways, the word bija is not just a seed that you plant in the ground, but bija loosely translates as the, the potential within every sentient life form, the potential to manifest enlightenment. On the other end, the, the blossom, the bloom, is also a metaphor for enlightenment. So the seed is the unmanifest the enlightenment in its dormant stage. It doesn't mean it's not there. Everything, all the genetic material, all the codes are in the seed, whether it's a human seed or the seed of a flower. So it's used often by the Buddha in the, the writings of his teachings and his sayings that he uses this, this metaphor as um, describing the process of spiritual growth. But also cultivating the wholesome qualities to reveal it or to attain it, to attain nirvana, the process of cultivating compassion, cultivating mindfulness or awareness or bright attention, and cultivating wisdom. And not for the sake of compassion itself or not just to be an, an aware person. The wholesome qualities or the Eightfold Path in Buddhism or, or any set of virtues are merely antidotes. They're not the end in themselves. Um, and sometimes I think this becomes the case for, for seekers or spiritual aspirants, that it's the, the virtue itself that one is after and, and not realizing that that actually is falling short of nirvana, let's say. If a person is having the so-called vices or suffering from the so-called vices like greed, dishonesty, harm, jealousy, envy, lust, uncontrollable desire, well then you can't be present. When somebody is craving that which is not in the present moment, then how can the enlightenment manifest? How can the, the reality be fully embodied at that moment? And so the virtues are, are simply to get freedom from those attachments, from those anchors. But beyond that, um, there may come a time where a person even needs to release the virtues or the virtuous life because one can actually become addicted in a sense or attached to being good or the idea of being good or what that can uh, do for a person, what that can bring into a person's life, 
And once again, uh, ignorance or delusion can overpower a person. So another way to think about it would be like, if I have a contaminant on my hands, then I would use the soap. The soap is the antidote to the poison or the contaminant or the dirt. But then ultimately I would need to wash both off. That's the deeper, uh, I think, insight to, to the virtues. And, and they need to be cultivated, especially in response to or as an antidote to the things we struggle with. So I don't think it's necessary to cultivate all these virtues. I think a person through self-study, swatyaya in Sanskrit, getting to know oneself, one will know what their afflictions are, what their samskars are. Samskars are latent impressions. In those religions, they believe it's due to past lives and past experiences being subtly carried in the astral body from life to life, or in Buddhism, or in the mind. It's not that everybody suffers from all of the same tendencies or same impressions, and therefore it's probably not necessary for everybody to cultivate all the same good qualities or virtues, but one ought to get to know themselves and what they struggle with. We used to joke in our in our band, the Giving Tree Band, when there were seven of us, that we were the seven deadly sins. You know, each of us just struggled with something a little bit different. And, and it was always, it became more apparent when, you, uh, when you're with each other around the clock on a tour. Like, no, we can't do that right now. Or no, like, that's not going to be good for us. We'll start, no, get that under control, bro. And, you know, and then we just try to help each other because everybody has their weaknesses, their temptations, their limitations, uh, their hangups, and their pain points. In the Gita, there is a passage from Krishna about the seed of all existences, that there is an origin or source from which all things arise, from, from which all the animation of the universe arises. It's a very strange thought, I and mean, I say this all the time, I think, in one form or another, that there could be a seed, a singularity at the dawn of the universe after that seed sprouts the big bang there is only matter in that singularity all the matter of the universe unmanifest and somehow the stardust that spreads out and becomes the cosmos and each galaxy that somehow they can become consciousness that somehow you get the right arrangement of this dust and you get well what may be thought of in in many scientific circles of emergentism that somehow they form stars and they form planets and they form organisms and then life or a brain and then consciousness. But it seems like, with as I've talked about with AI, that it would be really difficult uh, to create a conscious or sentient machine when we're not really sure what consciousness is. So I've said, you know, I think that happens would be an accident. Alternatively, and in, in accordance with a lot of the religious creations, there's already some conscious being. And the conscious being just expands or dreams. Like when we're having a dream, there's a lot of other consciousnesses. There's people, there's probably animals and other life forms. But they don't have separate consciousnesses. They share the one consciousness of the dreamer. 
But then that begs the question, okay, if there's a being that created the universe, then who created the being? And if the being doesn't need to be created, then why did the, why does the universe need to be created? So so maybe there, there was never uh, a seed in that way. Maybe there was just consciousness. Consciousness always at the, the foundation of everything. But in the Gita, the idea of a seed being the source of all existence, Krishna says something like, I'm, I'm the seed, I'm the, the origin, sort of like I'm the Alpha and the Omega in the Gospel. It's meant to underscore the interconnectedness of all life. If you can trace back all the multiplicity on a tree, on an oak tree, all the different leaves, all different colors and um, elements, the bark, the trunk, and so on, and the flowers and the fruits, and, and you reverse it, it all goes back to one acorn. In Christian religion, there's um, a story in the, the Gospel of Matthew about sowing seeds, and the emphasis in that story is on the soil, which I find you know, it's kind of different compared to some other stories about seeds in other religions. The soil matters in terms of whether or not the the seed will take root and the, or, or the seed will, will sprout. And uh, the disciple or the spiritual seeker's duty is to till the soil or to prepare the earth uh, or to cultivate the land. For finding a path to growth in our life, this could be our minds. Like, how can we cultivate our mind so that when the harmful thing hits us, the, the harmful word, it can't grow. It's not conducive in the soil of our mind, but uh, that which will bring abundance, bring love, joy, peace to all those in our life, our mind is prepared to receive that. So in the, in the gospel story, the teaching is about how to receive the word, the word of God. Word itself is a seed. And in the in the gospel, and maybe it's Matthew, and says in the beginning there was the word. And word is so close to world, you just add one letter. Word becomes world. For us, we can think about any word that we utter as a seed. And we don't know where it's going to land. You know, we're, we're spreading a, a seed when we speak. And depending on the environment, it could have all kinds of different con consequences. Even if the, the word is well-intentioned, it's still worth thinking about the consequences of it sprouting in different soils. So word becomes world. And also once the word comes out, you can't take it back. It's like toothpaste coming out of the tube. Nobody knows what the full effect is of everything that we've ever said. So even uh, doing kind mind gatherings or giving talks, it occurs to me all the time that you know I could have the best intentions ever, but I may not be able to ever really know all the consequences. So it's good to be mindful. I think it's good for me to not speak too much because it's easy to to do harm unintentionally. It's easy to get the, a harvest that you, you don't want to reap. 
the less thoughts we have through meditation, the less words we speak, means that we can improve the quality. We can decrease the quantity both of thoughts through a breath control and through meditation and mindfulness. And you can reduce the impulse to speak. And not that that's a desirable end in and of itself. It just helps it facilitate awareness. It's easier to see speech from its origin in the mind and to follow it to the mouth and uh, it's it's easier than to have more discipline with it. Whereas a mind that has more thoughts or racing thoughts, it can be harder to manage the impulse from thought to speech. And when emotion is in between and pushing, pushing, the anger pushes a word to come out that we may feel totally different about once the emotion subsides, once that storm passes. Word becomes world. I'd like to share with you five lessons that I reflected on when I just think about seeds growing in the earth and this time of year, this time of planting. The first is resilience and potential. A lotus seed can remain viable. Uh, it's been studied for up to a thousand years in some cases. So how does it do that and how can it do it without resilience? The lotus seed becomes the lotus flower, which is a symbol of enlightenment, symbol of transformation, the symbol of manifesting beauty in unsuspecting places because the lotus grows in muddy water. But this lesson of potential in all of us, like in Sanskrit, but we can think about this lesson as how we might transform our challenges, our hardships, into opportunities, into a pathway to growth and to tolerance and to understanding. What is our long game? When I think about the lotus taking a thousand years, up to a thousand years in some cases, to find uh, a place of purchase, sometimes people don't know what their, what their vision is, or maybe don't have a vision. Not that we would never change or adapt or adjust or that it's going to go exactly as planned. But I do think it's worthwhile to think long-term also. What, what are we building towards? How can I take the seed in my heart, the seed of everything that I think represents the full life um, or fulfillment and nurture that? So much of our frustrations, I think, and... Um, waywardness just is related to competing desires and living out our emotions and our changing moods their day to day if we can chart a course uh, for ourselves in, in a spiritual philosophical sense then even though our moods may change our feelings may change our health may change we can stay true to the deeper purpose and know that we're playing a longer game just because things go up and down and we have setbacks and victories and losses, we don't really get deterred because we know that this is uh, this is not a sprint, taking life like a, like a marathon instead of a sprint. Not that life's long. The second one is adaptability and dispersal. For this one, I offer the coconut seed. The coconut seed is able to float on water. 
which makes it unique. And this means that coconut can journey to seed new environments, uh, to bring life to new places. I think the message with adaptability and dispersal here is to reflect on embracing change, being able to accept change. Once the seed surrenders itself to the earth and to sprouting, it's forever changing. In another sense, I'll come back to this a little, little later, the seed can also represent our ego. Think of the lotus seed waiting a thousand years, perhaps. But all the while, when it's in that form, the seed is hard and somewhat stable. It stays like that. Whereas as soon as it sprouts, right, it's in a fluid state. It's in continuous flux. And that's scary. You know, it's scary to give up something stable, to give up an identity, to give up pride of a role that we might be playing or an attachment to a role or to a status. Another question here, another reflection with the second one, adaptability and dispersal. What are we spreading with our life, with our energy, with our every encounter? What is it that we want to remain wherever we go? When we say anything, when we look, when we talk, when we sit down with people, when we join something, when we participate in everything, uh, what is it that we leave there of ourselves? The third one is interdependence and collaboration. For this lesson, we can look at the orchid seeds. Orchid seeds are the smallest seeds in the world. They are dust-like particles, and they can only germinate with the help of fungus. For us, there are many goals that we might have that we can't achieve on our own. If we can be willing to allow for collaboration, allow for the, the distribution of credit, the saying, uh, it's amazing how far you can go if, uh, if you don't care about who gets the credit. Or if you want to travel fast, go alone. If you want to travel far, go together. And the orchid seed being tiny, being dust-like, and then becoming is sort of like how the small becomes powerful through community, through coalition. And the large uh, becomes weak because its power is concentrated in very few. Whereas uh, the base of the hegemony is very large. But in society, this is simply a matter of people coming together, people bonding, and um, building, not competing. In our society today, there's so much discord and so much mistrust, distrust. But I think if there was more space for dialogue and for listening, people would really listen. They would find that um, they do care about a lot of similar things. And uh, we argue about things that we care about in ways that end up having everybody talk past each other. Fourth is preservation and legacy. In uh, Norway, I believe, the Svalbard Global Seed Vault is somewhere in, in a mountain up there in Scandinavia, and it contains the 
sort of a doomsday store center of over a million samples of seeds representing 13,000 years of agricultural history. So it's a safeguard for biodiversity of the earth in the face of some kind of cataclysmic disaster. And it's, it's all about food security for the future. So a seed is also a symbol of care for the future guests of the earth. We're guests because we're not here very long. We're not here permanently in, on the cosmic scale. But at the same time, anywhere that we visit, when we go to be a guest at relatives or friends, there's probably some sense that I want to leave the place in at least of a, as good of a condition as when I came to visit or came to the room. So we might pick up our things, we might tidy up before we depart. And so a seed is also a symbol of the legacy not in terms of being important or or being famous or anything like that, but just knowing that we left a legacy of love and felt a sense of responsibility, not just for ourselves and for the people we're caring for now, but for the future. And you know, another definition of seed is progeny, just that offspring which is uh, yet to appear here. In the fifth one, resourcefulness and creativity because some seeds like the jackfruit seeds can be roasted or boiled or even ground to make flour remember the jack and the magic beanstalk from a seed from planting a seed so the fertilization of an egg leads to a new human I think that, you know, it's one, one reason why people might feel this great thrill in family life. I mean, at least at the onset of family life, because it's just so creative. And we see that in the earth, the, the creativity of this tiny little seed becoming a flower when you have a plant or when you take care of a plant, take care of a garden. So then I can imagine the garden of a family. You know how wonderful it is to have a garden or to even visit a garden. And the garden is so confined to that space. But if you have the garden of a family and the family has so much more freedom to continue to exponentially transform. I had a sixth one. Abundance and nourishment. An acorn becomes a mighty oak tree. I think it was Nietzsche who said something like, the worst part of shame, the, the trauma of shame, or the psychological wound of shame, is that it could deny a person from becoming who they are, in, this, in a sense of denying an acorn the opportunity to be the oak tree, which is which all the, the blueprint of the oak tree is obviously inside of the acorn. And so imagine if we personified an acorn, and acorn's rolling around in the forest and sees, it comes to, rolls to the, the feet of the mighty oak tree. And looking up to this tree, it doubts that it could ever go from its state to that state of existence, so expansive, 
a bridge between the earth and heaven and a fully realized member of the forest. So the acorn humbles itself to the oak tree and, and asks for wisdom, for guidance. How can I, being this tiny acorn, ever become like you? And in the compassion of the oak tree and the love of the oak tree, because the oak tree knows that she's none other than the, than the acorn, uh, but from a different point of view. So the oak tree feels herself connected and, and one with the little acorn, but still having compassion, tries to tell the, the little acorn that all it really takes is patience. The patience to let the process unfold. So the acorn's wondering, well, what are the steps? What is the next step of this patience? And the mighty oak explains, well, you have to be willing to break this hard shell of yours. And again, this represents the ego, the hardness of attachment to an identity. All my life, I've realized I'm just looking for somewhere or someone to hang my head on. How can I have a stable form in this unstable world? And if you pay attention, you'll see like everybody's doing that. We may find it in work or family or success or in our health, but none of those things are stable. Some, some of these um, identities, some of these roles have longer and shorter half-lives. We keep looking for it, right? And so the oak tree saying, you can't anymore. You can't be like the lotus seed and, and hold on to this form for a thousand years. If what you're saying is true, if you want to realize what you are. And the acorn said, well, but what is the risk? The risk is that you become soft and vulnerable and you will be forever in a process of transformation. But as soon as, as you allow for this crack, this break to happen, this shift, then you got to let go. And the little acorn is willing because, because at this point the acorn is desiring of desirelessness. Enough with the, you know, the, the burden of, of an identity. And so that, that's what you know, a tree is like. We see it in its, all its glory, but nobody really has the patience to, to witness the whole thing or we don't even have the, the luxury of the time to, to be with a tree from start to finish because it, they outlive us. Similarly, um, in, in a Zen parable, a seeker came to um, a forest monastery and asked for direction on the road to enlightenment. And the monk there said, well, in the corner of the courtyard, you'll see the seed of enlightenment. You see it? And he's looking, yeah, I see it. All you have to do is be with the seed of enlightenment and everything will take care of itself. Every day, make time to be with the seed. So he does every day, he sits and watches the seed. And eventually the seed germinates and or anchors to the earth and the sprouts and a root connects and days pass, weeks pass, months pass, maybe some years pass. And just from that simple practice of being with the seed of enlightenment, 
the seeker experiences the ephemeral nature of everything, including his own sense of separation, his own sense of identity, his own sense of ego, because he sees continuously that there's nothing static. There's nothing static in the seed, in the condition of the uh, the sprouted seed. And then he feels that within his own being. But also, by paying attention to the seed of enlightenment, the seed is a nexus for everything in the universe. Everything that is, anything that apparently has separate existence, has a, an influence on this, this ever-changing process. The earth, the sun, the light, the water, the elements, the time, space, all the forces of nature, what, what is creating this harmony between the earth and the sun. There's a force there. And if you are still enough, if you're silent enough, if you're present enough, you feel that, as he did, that he's no different than, than the seed, that he is also that seed. And so then the, the enlightenment that he sought from the monk in the monastery blossoms in the mind of the student. The seed grows in the darkness. And so there's a little bit of vulnerability, right? Almost all growth requires softness, right? Because you have to, be, you have to become malleable. A crab sheds its shell like a snake sheds its skin and goes into a dark crevice in the, in the water and is totally vulnerable in that time, but uses the rocks to hide itself or protect itself while it grows a new shell. Otherwise, it's very protective layer it's out of layer like acorn becomes its own prison its own limitation so that is the dialectic of softness through the gentleness through the the willingness to enter into the unknown the familiar or to expose ourselves to the darkness metaphorically like the seed going into the earth like the oak tree told the, the acorn you have to be willing to go into the earth and make your connection there there's also some some grace in the in the reality that not every seed becomes some flower or some plant. Imagine every like negative thought we had became a reality, went all the way to germination, manifestation. So in, in one sense, it's like a powerful stroke of luck that we don't get every thing we plant. You know, think of relationships that didn't work out. We watered it, we nurtured it, it didn't work. And maybe long time later, it's like oh, a good thing that did, didn't fully blossom, you know. Stuff like that, you know, comes to my mind um, where we just, we don't know. You know, we don't know all the forces that shape things. Some seeds we eat and they become part of us and they don't become flowers. You know, when we eat sunflower seeds, we eat pumpkin seeds, you know, the, that pumpkin seed doesn't become a pumpkin. But it gives us energy, it gives us nourishment. So I look at life like that whenever I eat something. It's a future sacrificed or it's whatever other potentials were there are sacrificed to become part of me. In my prayer, I'm thinking, can will I be ready to do that? Will I be ready to be the soil for a flower one day, for a garden one day? Will I be at peace knowing that my future also is in the roots of a tree, meaning my corporeal existence. Then the other thing is when we're nurturing anything, that's always a possibility. So it's a lesson of detachment. 
I'm watering this flower and I'm caring for it. But if I'm attached to the outcome, then I'm also setting myself up for disappointment. Oh, it didn't turn out the way I want. There are plans and there are hopes and there are dreams, but none of that's ever guaranteed. Can I balance that interest in the future with giving my my attention, my love and presence with one another and, and trying to make sure like we just appreciate that, knowing that we only have so much control of the, the outcome of things.